John here, and we've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. Now that you've finished your latest Pirate Math SpongeCore Twitch trek, it's time to get it out there so everyone can hear it. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. And because you're a high-gain listener, you get 30% off. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash high-gain. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash high-gain. And now DistroKid has an app. The DistroKid app is available for iOS and Android. You can download it at distrokid.com slash app or in the app and play stores. We'd like to take a minute to thank our pals over at Isotope, makers of software and plugins for audio repair, mixing, and mastering. The new gold standard of audio repair, Isotope RX11, is coming in May. Buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. We use Isotope products here at the High Gain. It's an important part of how we've been able to bottle pure podcast gold week after week. High Gain listeners get 10% off using the promo code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. That's all at isotope.com. I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hey, it's me, Ed Peterson. And it's me, John Kiltica, Ed. Hey, John, where are we recording from? Beautiful. West Seattle, Washington. A little rainy, kind of overcast today. It's probably because of something you did. Yeah. We like to do the weather report early. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about guitars. Pedals. Yeah, amps, pedals. Microphones. Microphones. The usual. And. Yeah. Other people. Oh, God. Man, is this the first in-studio guest since COVID? This might be the first, like, sitting in a room with a fella. And that might make today's guest, John Roderick, one of the bravest we've ever had. For sure. How you doing, John? I'm great. Thank you for having me into your weird cave. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can really see that you guys really let this place go. Yeah. (laughs) It's always lovely. Yeah. But John's actually done a little work, believe it or not. Maybe a little sloppy, usually. Well, you're married, so you have to keep up appearances, right? That's right. I mean, if this were my place, it would just be water bottles full of pee and cigarette butts, right? <laughs> <laughs> he just cleaned those out. But this is impressive to come down here. It's like a guitarathon. Yeah. One of everything, kind of. They follow us home. <laughs> <laughs> Since this podcast started, we've been doing this like five years. I've got pretty close to a hundred percent turnaround, which is terrible. You know, it's not the way to do it really. I feel like there's two kinds of guitar collectors. And one kind is like you, always a guitar coming in, always yep. one going out. Yeah. You lose money on every transaction. Exactly. <laughs> That's the beauty. Yeah. And then guitar people like me who pretty much have every guitar they ever touched with the exception of only a few. And the ones that I did get rid of are the ones that would be worth any money today. Right. I've had some cool guitars that would be not retirement guitars, but great guitars. For some reason, those are the ones that I traded to somebody. I had a 72 Mustang. Oh yeah. That was just 
beat to hell. I bought it at a pawn shop in Seattle for 175 bucks, and I just played the hell out of it and traded up for a jazz master that I then hated. I worked at Emerald City Guitars in the 90s. Yeah. Jay Boone was, for a long time in the 90s and early 2000s, he was basically running a halfway house at Emerald City Guitars. So somebody would get sober, they'd have like 40 <laughs> days of sobriety, and Jay would give them a job. And then their sobriety would not be sustainable. Sure. And then they wouldn't show up to work. So I was on his speed dial as a guy he knew didn't have anything to do during the day. And he would call me and say, hey, man, can you work today? And so I was his fill-in guy for a couple of years, a few years. I got paid 50 bucks a day, 12 hours, 50 bucks. Perfect. So I took a lot of those $50 days in trade for a variety of Lyles and Gaia tones yeah. and <laughs> Univoxes in 1998. Who cared about a Univox? At the end of the shift, I'd be like, well, what about this, Jay? I mean, I don't want your 50 bucks, man. So, yeah, I've got a garage full of that stuff. Yeah. What about that guitar? You brought a guitar, John. Well, musician extraordinaire John Roderick has brought yeah. us this 1977 Fender Starcaster, Ed. How is 77 as a year? Decent? They only made them for three years, so there's not a huge range. By 79, it was done. Just the pure shape of that thing, ignoring the semi-hollowness of it, looks a lot like those EVH guitars. Really scaled up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you running it through? You got a lot of pedals here. <laughs> I do. I am running it through nothing except the 1981 Inventions DRV pedal. Huh. Yeah, so this Starcaster, actually, I got at Emerald City. A 68 Tele with a bound body and a factory Bigsby came into the shop while I was working. You know, this was back in the day when like little old ladies would come in and say like, my son died in Vietnam and this has <laughs> yeah. been in the closet ever since. Yeah. Is it worth anything? Yep. That Tele came in and I was just like, oh my God, this is killer. I got this Tele and I played it in my band at the time, the Western State Hurricanes. This was the large amp era. So yes. we all had 412 cabinets with 100-watt heads, <laughs> and we were all running rap pedals all the time. Yes. This telly just was not made for that. It was just howling and squealing all the time. I couldn't keep a hold of it. I didn't understand what the hell I was doing. So I'm sitting there at Emerald City some other day, and some guy walks in and opens up the case, and here's a guitar I'd never seen before. 70s brown Fender Starcaster. And I said, Jay, I'll trade you straight across that Telecaster for this Starcaster. And I've had it ever since. That was probably 2001. You made the right call because this is a guitar that you play a lot. Bad financial Financially, choice. you might have made the wrong call on that particular trade. I thought maybe John could play us into beverages. Oh. I will. I do do it. It is one of the ways I make a living. Beverages. 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 
That's perfect beverage time. Yeah. I got a uh, black coffee and a crow mug. Hot damn. I yeah. watched you make it. Yeah. You've transitioned to the Keurig style of making coffee. And I feel horrible about it. I stopped at Empire Coffee in Seattle's Normandy Park neighborhood. Oh. And got a quad Americano. Ooh. And they asked me if I wanted to use my points. Yeah, yeah. And I said, no, I'm saving my points for the apocalypse. That's great. Oh. Uh -huh. I save up enough points. I go downtown. I trade them to Jay. For a microphone. Yeah. I went into Thunder Road Guitars and Frank was like, hey, I've got this 14 string loot thing. Buy this from me. Make me an offer. And I had a 90% of the way filled Easy Street Records punch card for albums. <laughs> and I said, I've got this punch card. There might have been like two bucks, a punch card and a little enamel pin. All in. I'm going to start coming down to Thunder Road and I'm going to bring like two live chickens. <laughs> exactly. He'll do it. Yeah. I have coffee too. Yeah. But I also have this wild wonder. Yeah. Strawberry passion drink that mm -hmm. purports to be both prebiotic Ooh. and pro. Your gut is going to be loving you. I do have some non-alcoholic beers over here. Would you like a non-alcoholic beer, John? No, you know, I never touch the stuff. Okay. I realized pretty early on that, for me at least, when I stopped drinking, the last thing I wanted to do was pretend to be drinking. Yeah. Quitting drinking is a mind game. Yep. Way more than it is any other kind of game. Sure. Do you swear on this podcast? We sure do. I have a very strong fuck it reaction. If you trigger me to say, well, fuck it. Just one beer. I will burn your fucking house down, right? If I get into, well, fuck it, I'm going to wake up in Spokane and I'm not going to have my shoes on. For sure. I just had to get all the way away from it. When did you start playing music of any kind? When you were a kid? Or? So when I was in high school in the 1980s, and you know that in the 1980s, in any American high school, there were between five and 15 dudes that were all, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everybody was learning the same set of tunes. You know, there was the ZZ Top kid and there was the Judas Priest Rockarola kid. And it was pre-hair metal. Yeah. So there wasn't any sense of there being speed metal or. The hardcore scene was a scene. Not in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. There was a sort of nascent punk rock, but it wasn't like Fugazi. And it was before metal splintered into 50 kinds of metal. There was metal. I didn't have dexterity. You know, my left hand, it's just a rubber glove full of pudding. You know, it's just like floppita, floppita, floppita. <laughs> you did that little Eddie Van Halen oh, hammer I mean, on you know. pull-off? Come on. What are you talking about? I've learned how to compensate. But at the time, what I realized was none of these dudes could sing or were interested in singing. And I had no shame. So I was like, oh, I'll be the singer. And so I was in a couple of bands in high school as the singer. My biggest band, if you could call it that, was called the Truly Awful Band. And what I didn't realize was that the lead guitarist was coming in with these riffs, but they were all Blue Oyster Cult riffs. He was coming in with some of those and some early Judas Priest riffs, and I didn't recognize them. 
Yeah. And so I was coming up with my own lyrics over the top, like, yeah, you know, come on. <laughs> and he was shameless. He passed them off as his own. And it was only later that I was like, that's a Black Sabbath rip. And he was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess technically. <laughs> <laughs> technically. But it was only later that I picked up the guitar and started, you know, learning cowboy chords. Yeah. Because I could then sing over my own chords and I didn't have yeah. to rely on somebody else. But it wasn't until I was out of high school that I kind of wrote my first song and had this idea of myself as like a cowboy guitar player. If your left hand sucks, that can be fine. Yeah. You can get by with a lot with your right hand. You can, and you can get by with murder if you sing. Sure. Because if you sing, it covers a multitude of sins. There's the perceived difficulty rating. He's playing guitar. Oh, but he's singing at the same time. The bass players who can sing. It seems impossible. I was the bass player in Harvey Danger for a few tours and also sang harmony vocals. Yeah. I had to do that self-lobotomy where you just cut your mind in half. Yeah. This half of my mind is just on its own. It's going to be doing these things, and I'm not going to be paying any attention. Was that just super hard? Well, I guess I had already cut my brain in half in a few different ways. You know, there's some people, you can take them out of a subway anywhere in the world, and they just know which way north is. Right. I'm one of those people. I know where north is no matter where I am. Just feel it in my body. And I also feel rhythm that way. I'm not saying that I have like any kind of super sexy pocket or anything like that. I have like a kind of jazz understanding of where the one is. Everything can be going totally off. It can be chaos, but I still know where one is. Right. And that helped me a lot over the years. By the time you split high school then, you thought of yourself more as a songwriter? No. No. I spent a lot of my youth, I guess what you would call now unhoused. I don't know what term I would have used. I was just living, man. But I did not have a regular address for a lot of that time. So October of 90, I was here in Seattle, kind of couch surfing. I knew people here. And within the first few days, I went down to the OK Hotel because somebody had called the phone number of the house where I was crashing. No one else was home. And they said, hey, you know, is Eric there? I need somebody to work tonight at the OK. What's the job? And he was like, you know, if you can get down here by six, you're hired. And I was doing stage security, like stand on the stage and keep stage divers off the stage. I was hooked. Downtown had a real vibe. It felt sketchy and fucked up. And I was like, this is awesome. So I had my cowboy cords. And I'm watching every night this. And I said, well, shit, I play the guitar. <laughs> I can play the guitar at least as well as three quarters of these people. And I mean, I wasn't wrong. A lot of those bands just were awful. And so I started to play the guitar more seriously, right? Sit at home and like work it out, try and figure out like what the fuck a minor chord is and why you would use one. I mean, somebody had taught me the, the I mean, I could do that, right? I could play Bad Moon Rising. And I started to just chop away at it. Uh -huh. And I knew I wasn't punk. It didn't have it in my heart. I wasn't mad at anybody. And I didn't feel <laughs> like dying young. You know, I didn't. That just wasn't where I was coming from. And I wasn't metal. 
I didn't really care that much about anything to have like a vibe. He wouldn't look at me and go like, oh, that dude is a member of this subculture. Right. I just looked like a pile of dirty clothes. <laughs> and that kind of continues to this day. I mean, I look like a pile of clean clothes now. Yeah. But I never latched onto a scene and said like, that's what I want to sound like. That's who I want to be with. I'm a little bit older than most indie rockers. And I was just kind of sitting there with my weird chords and my screwed up time signatures. And indie rock came along and suddenly I was a member of a scene. Do you feel like you were co-opted or did you feel like, well, that's what I want to do? No, I wasn't co-opted. I was just standing there never having done a thing that anybody recognized or acknowledged. Right. I was the guy that went down to the crocodile with the demo tape, didn't hear from him for a month. Then they called up and they were like, first of three on a Tuesday. And I was like, I'll take it. Sold. Then after the show, I'd go like, got any more shows? And they would say, send us a demo. <laughs> I sent you a demo. <laughs> and they'd say, send us another demo. And I did that for two years. Wow. All of a sudden, it was like every cute barista in town was playing Modest uh. Mouse. So you'd go into any cool coffee shop and that record was playing. It was like, whoa. And then Harvey Danger's record came out and they had that song, Flagpole Sitta. They had gotten signed and they weren't grunge, right? Whatever they were. Right. All of a sudden, I felt like grunge wasn't what people were talking about anymore. So we're opening for Park Boys at the Sit and Spin. <laughs> that place was great. Literally a laundromat and a pizza restaurant and a rock club. So good. But the first band was this band from Bellingham. Then they looked like they were about 14. We had sound checked and my band was in the other room eating pizza and playing backgammon or whatever. And I went in to watch the opener sound check. And they had toy instruments. The lead guitar player was playing, what the hell? It was the smaller version of Fender guitars. They had a little star on the logo. The bullet? A bullet. It was a bullet Stratocaster, three quarters size. Yep. And they had like an actual cassette player on stage with a microphone. And that was like their samples and some kind of Farfisa. Oh, and they were playing through Silvertone amps. I love everything about this band. <laughs> I'm watching them set up and I'm yeah. like, look at these kids with their toy instruments. Yeah. And they launch into their first song and it was champagne in a paper cup. The band was Death Cab for Cutie. You could see it. First show, this band's awesome. And they were. We played that night, and I remember Death Cab were lined up at the front of the stage watching our set. And we got off the stage, and they came over, and they were like, finally, another band that's doing whatever that is. And I was like, we're nothing like you. We're like a rock band. I don't know what you are. You're like a music box. But we bonded with them. Yeah. Suddenly, there was a bunch of new bands. It was way more about songwriting and way less about attitude. That was spring of 98. And from that moment on, it was a whole different town. Have I always seen you playing a Starcaster and thought it was a 335? Or do you play both? When I was still drinking, I got a paycheck and I was sitting with a buddy of mine. And I was like, you know, I got 800 bucks. I'm going to go buy an eighth and, you know, drinks at the Commodore on me. And he was this kind of weirdly wise dude. And he said, or you could go to trading musician and buy a guitar because I know you want to play guitar. If you blow this paycheck on weed, 
you're just going to smoke weed. But if you go buy a guitar, maybe you'll have a guitar. And in that moment, he made sense to me. And the two of us took the bus to trading. And there's this Rickenbacker, a blonde 360 that had been carved out. And it had two Gibson humbuckers in it that were like from the early 70s. And it had a nine volt preamp with a dip switch. They wanted 600 bucks. And it was a 1966 Rickenbacker, hammered. (laughs) It just was unique and it was cheap and it was kind of trashy. So I bought it. All of my early bands, that was my only guitar. And then this Starcaster was my second guitar. So when I got this Starcaster, I was like Mr. Rich Guy. I had two guitars. And then Gibson came to town and opened the Gibson showroom. And I went down, and the guy at the time who was running it was a guy named Jeff. He wasn't a music guy. He was a business guy. And he said, well, what we're trying to figure out is how many impressions do you generate? (laughs) And I had never heard that term. What year is this? 2003. He was talking about internet shit, right? It was magazines. Oh, man. Television appearances. Yeah, okay. Record sales. Yeah. There'd been a feature on us in Magnet. There'd been a feature on us in Spin. We'd sold a certain number of records, right? Yep. I came in with this documentation, and he's like doing math on it. Right. Well, this one's worth 700,000 impressions, and that one, you know, and I was like, I've been on this television show. And so he calculated that the Long Winters were just generating enough impressions to get an endorsement deal from Gibson. And I was like, well, so do I get like free Les Pauls? No, we tried the whole give musicians free stuff thing. And they said, we're not going to give you any free guitars, but we will loan you whatever you want for as long as you want. I was always nervous that my Rickenbacker and my Starcaster were going to get damaged. If you look at the back here, at one point, the truss rod actually popped out. Oh. And I had to get this repaired. The Rickenbacker, the neck broke at the heel and had to get it all glued together. And all of a sudden, Gibson's like, oh, yeah, you want a 59 Les Paul? You can just have this one and take it wherever you want. I thought Les Pauls were kind of uncool, kind of corny, especially like a sunburst. What kind of dork am I all of a sudden? But I got out on the road, and I had never had a guitar that just did everything right. This guitar did not have any bad sounds in it. It was not unpredictable at all. It was just dynamite. And by the end of that tour, I said, oh wow, this is a real resource. And that's when I went to them and said, I want a 335. From that point on, they just kept me supplied with 335s. I never owned one of them. Really? They all belonged to Gibson. Wow. And they were just like, take it as long as you want. But what was great is like our tour would be over. We'd be in Spain. I'd be looking at like, I got to schlep this freaking thing back to Amsterdam and then back to blah, 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 blah. Or I could email Gibson and say, hey, my tour's over in Spain. I don't want this thing anymore. And they would send their Spanish rep who would take the guitar from me, and I never had to think about it again. Well, you know, this one... Now, wait, you have some info about this guitar? Yes, I do. Listen to that tone. Listen to that sweet tone. (laughs) Listen to it. Listen to it. It's still going. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what all the knobs do. Oh, yeah, the rundown. We'll have John be the stunt player. Okay. Oh. 
You're looking at two Seth Lover-designed wide-ranging humbuckers, two tones, two volumes, and a master volume. Master volume! Great. And a pickup selector switch. This is a hardtail. There's no vibrato on it. That's the most of what it is. Binding, top and bottom. String through the body. Maple neck. Offset body. The top is also maple, laminated. Wackadoodle headstock. The designer of this was a guy named Gene Fields. You might know Gene Fields from his other hits, mm. like the Mustang bass. Oh, no oh. kidding. The Music Master bass. Okay. Or the Bronco guitar. Oh, the Bronco. Yeah. As soon one as you said Bronco, is... I looked around because yeah. it's exactly one of the guitars you would have in here. It kind of is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before he did this, Gene was working on a guitar called the Marauder. Oh. That Fender never did put out. They only prototyped it. A lot of what ended up being in the Starcaster was in the Marauder. That headstock, yeah, which is kind of swirly with a stripe underneath it. This is actually a cutout in the wood. German carve. Which would make sense because our man Gene was in the research and development department led by his boss, Roger, Roger Rossmeisel, designer of the 300 series of Rickenbackers. No way. Cool. Yeah. I love that the DNA of this Starcaster has Rickenbacker DNA in it. Yep, That it makes a lot of sense to me. The funny part is this was not supposed to be as good a guitar as it is. Hmm. At the time, they were done with the Coronados. Remember those things? I always think of the Coronados as being really cheapo, bolt-on neck hollow body mm -hmm. children's guitar. Mike Doty from Soul Coughing, he swears by his Coronado like they became a real thing. If you find a good one, they're great. So Fender was like, all right, this is a dog. we got to get rid of these Coronados. Hey, Gene Fields, we need you to take all these surplus Coronado bodies and do something with them. <laughs> we need you to design something that will help us use up all this crap. That is their jam. We have something semi-successful, not successful. We're just going to reuse them. What is it? Not the Maverick, the... The Swinger. It's like a Mustang body. And the and headstock is pointed. They had a bunch of these excess bodies. And so we just took a bandsaw and literally carved a C in the body, in the ass oh, of the body. Oh, I remember those. Those, right? Terrible ideas. So Gene gave it the old college try until he couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. He's like, hey, boss, I think I can make a really nice guitar similar to what you want me to do with these bodies. What do you think? And the powers that be were like, no, that's too expensive, man. So Gene starts dictating the feature set. Well, what if it's not a set neck? What if it's a bolt-on neck? Will that save money? Yeah, maybe that'll save a little money. Why don't we use those pickups that Seth designed for the Tele Deluxe? We don't have to invent new jazzy-style pickups or anything. And they let him do it. He and Roger kind of worked on it. Oh, Roger helped too? Well, Roger was his boss. Roger would have been like, hey, Gene Fields, that's a great idea. Was Roger drinking at the time? Probably. Tell you what. Yeah. Roger worked for Gibson, Rickenbacker, and Fender. Somebody a couple of years ago made a documentary that is called Who the Fuck is Roger Rossmeisel? <laughs> and it made it around to all the film festivals. I can't find it streaming anywhere. Somebody write in and tell us where to see yeah. that because I'd love to see that. Yes. Yeah. Here's where we get to the fun part, John Roderick, of The Long Winters. Mm -hmm. It is 1976. You have a whole bunch of that Jimmy Carter cash burning a hole oh, in your pocket. Yeah. It was a rich time in America. That's right. Once you're done waiting in line to get gas in the car. Uh-huh, that's right. Gas uh, in your Pinto. You want to go buy one of these. So in 1976 dollars, what are you going to pay for 
the Fender Starcaster. In 1970, my mom was making $9,000 a year. In 1977, I think she'd gotten a couple of raises, but was making less than 20. She was probably making 15,000 a year, maybe, in 1976, 77. I'm going to do a thing for you here. 1976 loaf of bread. Will that help? Mm-hmm. 30 cents. Loaf of bread, 30 cents? So yep. at this time, my yep. mom was still buying day-old bread yep. because it saved us money. Was she buying day-old milk at $1.42 a gallon? Probably got fresh milk. Okay. But, you know, milk lasts more than a day. Sure. A house. Oh. $54,750. She sold our house in 78 for 40000 But, you know, it was a humble house. Is this Alaska dollars? That was the thing. We were living in Seattle at the time. Oh, okay. She moved to Alaska, got a job at the pipeline, and immediately was making $35,000 oh, a year. Lord. And then I remember the day sometime in the mid-'80s when she was making 50000 a year because that was as much as my dad. Oh, uh. They were divorced. She was making more than my dad all of a sudden. And that was like, I don't know if there was a bigger moment in her life. Yeah. Because it still reverberates with me the day that my mom was making more than my dad. Because it really changed the dynamic. Yeah, for that. sure. <laughs> yeah. Between them, at least. So, 76. 76. So, I had a Schwinn Stingray because I had graduated from the big wheel. <sighs> How many 1977 dollars did it take to buy a 1977 Fender Starcaster in 1977? Tune in next week for the conclusion of our conversation with John Roderick. Until then, you can find him on Instagram at John Roderick or Patreon at John Roderick. You can also find us in those places at the High Game. And we are proud members of the Ruinous Media Network with music-related podcasts. Head on over, give them a listen. Okay, see you next time.